Thanks for a billion listens. It's getting more explicit. Once you're on, on a certain type of exploration, some people are going to be turned off. You know, but I think as an artist, you have to stay excited about what it is you're doing. And, uh, you know, so Grandmama probably didn't buy that Love Symbol album. But that's all right. You know, it's somebody did. <laughs> trends and what the sales were going to be and all that. I mean, everybody wants to hit records. I'm not saying he didn't want to hit, but he wanted to do what was in his heart. He wanted to do music that was coming out of his heart. He's not going to go, I want to do Diamonds and Pearls too. The three ladies or you know what I mean? It's, it's what's, you know, coming through him. Prince and the New Power Generation take control. Act one. Prince looked to give Love Symbol a boost by going out on his first U.S. tour in five years. Commencing in March 93, Act One took part of the concept behind the album, a love story centered on his future wife, Maite Garcia, and reimagined it as a theatrical live performance. With a second set dedicated to the hits and the shows staged in small, intimate venues, the tour proved popular and tickets moved fast. Oh, it was sold out every night. <laughs> At that time, we were just, we were a polished and well-oiled machine at that point, so we could turn a corner, you know, and he wanted to do something a little more theatrical for the show. It was more like a, a theater tour. Uh, it was groundbreaking in a lot of ways, you know. Prince would show us the, uh, <laughs> like, the reviews, and the reviews were stunning. They were incredible. Everywhere we went, it sold out, and the band was on fire, and it was just, we just had a, a great time. <laughs> But the success of Act One failed to translate into greater sales of Love Symbol. Prince found fault with his label, claiming that their promotional efforts had been lackluster. Given that the album's third single, Seven, had recently broken the top ten, executives at Warner's responded with raised eyebrows. Seven had been their pick as first release, but they had agreed to Prince's demand that the notably less popular Sexy MF take precedence. When they asked him to slow the pace at which he submitted new material, Prince reacted badly, taking to the stage during the tour and inveighing against Warner Brothers. For their part, the label claimed that releasing as often as he wanted to would saturate the market, making it even harder to run a successful promotion. A full-blown dispute kicked off and started to filter into the public domain. That's their fault. That's not our fault. I mean... You know, I'm, if their machine can't keep up with us, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> What's he supposed to do? You know, he got to get his music out. I mean, within reason, if the material is good, it should be marketed. It should be put out. There should be videos for it. They should be able to go on tour, and they should be able to have support and, you know, do the things that they're supposed to do and have a successful record. You should have just done it all himself, promotion well, The situation with Warner Brothers, with his audience as we were on tour. I think Prince was just trying to let them in to his world to a certain degree to let him know, let them know what he was going through. It was a monologue mostly, and them 
you know, he says something about Warner Brothers, and then it's a lot of booing in the audience. <laughs> and uh, one night, I remember um, they started chanting, like, you know, F Warner Brothers. And Prince just kind of turned around with the mic, and he was kind of cracking up. And looking at us like, you hear this? He just get on stage and berate his record label for more or less not letting him do what he wanted. Um, which kind of, also having just signed what he was proclaiming was a $100 million deal, didn't really chime with, you know, the poor artist who had been held back by his record label because he just boasted having this great deal where his record label were giving him everything he wanted. Things were complicated at Warner Brothers at the time. There was a very big... Uh, I called it the Civil War happening. I worked uh, at two different Warner labels during those years. There was a lot of battling going on at the top. His deal was seen as unfair or overly generous by a lot of the other artists there. And again, it comes back to ownership for him. I don't think he was ever able to accept the fact he didn't own his music. He didn't feel as loved by the label anymore, uh, which is strange because it was the same people he had been dealing with initially anyway for his entire career. And once those people were gone, once Mo Austin and Lenny Warrenker stepped away and had to answer to new bosses themselves, things went from bad to worse. And he started submitting albums that were not only uncommercial, um, I would say in moments they were kind of unlistenable. And uh, he was clearly not bringing his A-list material to them. And he started putting, uh, he started putting out albums so quickly that uh, in order to get out of his contract, that I think they may have even threatened legal action because he was he was just putting out an album, trying to put out an album every six months. With the parties at an impasse, the argument quickly turned bitter. In the summer of '93, Prince presented Warner's with a new power generation album, Gold Nigger. Side projects and collaborations with both proteges and other artists had been a long-standing feature of Prince's work enabling him to make musical excursions and explore artistic concepts without the expectations attached to his core brand. But when Goldnigger unexpectedly landed at the label, they dug in their heels and flatly refused to release it. Prince was dismayed. He responded by pressing up the album himself, distributing through a telephone order service and merchandise stores at his shows. This foray into independence in turn provoked the ire of Warner Brothers, who dimly viewed it as a naked breach of contract. By this point, they wanted to release a best of, sort of consolidate his career a little bit, make sure they made a lot of money out of this, you know, all of the Prince hits album sort of thing. And Prince just kept bringing them new albums and new material. And he had another side project album, Gold Nigger, which was his new power generation album, fronted by Tony M, the terrible rapper. This was never going to sell, but Prince wanted Warners to release it. He had success with the time, he had success with Sheila Ree and all these other side projects of the 80s. But by the early 90s, the quality of work wasn't there. And so if Prince's own work isn't selling as well, they certainly weren't interested in releasing a side project that had no hope of selling at all. Instruments 
and also was a showcase for, for Tony, for Tony M, to do his thing. You know, it's um, it's very much in the tradition of like black exploitation. You know, I think that we had like a deuce and a quarter on the front of the record. Like we're all kind of, we were in California, you know, posing all thuggish, ruggish, you know, looking like we were, you know, <laughs> some kind of gang. <laughs> but um, it was kind of just a throwback thing. And we had worked on these tracks and Prince had been driving around listening to it. He was just like, I really like this. You know, let's put it on. Those albums were fun to do because we could step out of the box and we could do a, a totally different sound from what Prince was doing. You know, but there were still elements of that sound that still tied it all together. And I think at that time, that sound for me was, that was some of the funnest stuff we ever did. I thought it was funky. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's, you know, these things happen, you know, and you just have to move on to the next thing, you know. And that was heartbreaking, you know, but you move on. That was kind of in the same creative territory as... Um, Another thing we worked on called The Undertaker. And I think this was also where Prince began to realize that he wasn't legally able to circumvent the system. Something happened with The Undertaker. Like, he wanted to just press, like, a thousand copies and just just give it to friends and, you know, concerned parties. And um, somebody at Warner Brothers said, you can't do that. <laughs> you, and it was just, it's covers. It's like Honky Tonk Woman and... You know, there were some originals on it, but, I mean, it was very cavalier. It was a jam session with me and Sonny and, and Prince, you know, in the, in the middle of the night. He was like, this is cool. Let's, let's you know, I want to get this out to some people. And, you know, <laughs> and Warner Brothers intervened. And, uh, no, uh, you can't do that. Anything you release, you know, has got to go through us. Feeling trapped and that his art and identity had been taken hostage by a cynical, autocratic and self-serving corporation, Prince made one of the most drastic and infamous moves of his career. He stopped being Prince. On June the 7th, 1993, Prince announced that he had changed his name to the unpronounceable glyph from the Love Symbol album, that he would no longer turn in any new material to Warner Brothers, and that his contractual obligations would be met by releasing old songs from The Vault. His core fan base remained supportive, but the wider public were perplexed. Though his PR team loftily asked that he be called The Artist, he was more commonly referred to as The Artist formerly known as Prince, and universally mocked by a media industry that was sure he had finally vacated his senses. The artist formerly known as Prince is one of the most controversial and most mysterious figures in rock. He's even asked to be referred to only as a symbol, but for clarity in this story, we'll call him Prince. That extraordinary moment where Prince changes his name to the symbol, a symbol that nobody knew how to print. Warner Brothers actually was on the hook to produce like little round discs full of the software to hand out to people at uh, magazines so you could reprint Prince's name the way he wanted it printed. Crazy. <laughs> My name is very spiritual to me. It has a great deal of spiritual meaning. And uh, um, one day maybe I'll hear a sound that will best give me the feeling of what it's supposed to be but for right now i just go by the look of it at that moment his complaint is that warner's isn't giving him ownership of his intellectual property that's the way we would phrase it today uh, it becomes an intellectual property battle 
I made this music, why don't I own it? Why don't I own my master? Wait, why don't I own my publishing? Um, all things that Prince continues to be obsessed with to this day. Uh, and yet, at that time, these were things that you know, musicians didn't talk about that much. Now, not that unusual to find either uh, an indie musician talking about, well, I want to stay at an indie label because I want to own my work, or to find someone, a veteran artist, saying, I'm suing my record company to get back my rights because under copyright law, and then it just becomes a lecture. But at that time, we weren't really used to artists making these complaints. It seemed like belly aching. I mean, it seemed like someone who's famous and rich complaining that he wasn't rich enough. The name change, you could look at a lot of different ways. I mean, the, the undeniable fact is that the name change made him kind of a buffoon. It certainly became the subject matter of talk show jokes and so on. He had to see that happen to coming. I can't imagine he didn't. That's right. The artist formerly, what, what do you call him? Well, he, you got to hold up this thing. <laughs> no, seriously, what do you call well, him? Well, this right here. <laughs> oh. Did I call him Prince? Oh, no. Yeah, you have to hold up the thing because he's the artist. Hey, Paul. Oh, Lord. The dispute and the name change were unquestionably damaging to Prince, especially the name change. I think I'll call him Prince. All right, why don't you just get a cab and, and go home, all right? Check it out. His behavior had been strange. Um, his public behavior had been strange in a lot of ways leading up to it. Uh, and... When you do something like change your name to an unpronounceable symbol, sure, it's an interesting publicity stunt, but if you're at a news organization, let alone a record company, okay, when you're talking about the artist's name, the amount of uh, 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 production work that goes into simply rendering that is, is a whole other thing, to say nothing of the public perception of what it says about that person. Now, he may have had his... Uh, reasonably defensible uh, legal re legal and moral reasons for wanting to do that, you know, uh, saying that, you know, Prince is, is, an, is a corporate entity separate from me, the actual person. My name is... Um, it doesn't endear you to people. And I just remember a headline, I think it was from the, uh, from the New Musical Express at the time, and it said, my name is... And the subtitle was, and I am bonkers. submit records to Warner Brothers, but yet still under contract, Prince found himself in a bind. The genesis of his argument with the label had been his prolific output, yet any new work would not now reach the public ear. Though he had picked a fight with his paymasters over releasing his work, Prince was confronted by the reality that he may have thrust his whole career into limbo. He was a man who, in the late 70s, negotiated 
not to have a producer. He had an executive producer on his first album, but he, he wouldn't have an actual producer on it. And that was, you know, his first battle with Warner Brothers, he'd won. His second battle was Dirty Mind. He wanted to release a really raw, stripped-down album. Warner Brothers said that he needed to add overdubs, kind of clean it up a bit. But no, it came out as Dirty Mind, this, this record that Warner Brothers didn't expect. It was more new wave than R&B. Later on... 1999 comes out as a double album. It's another argument that Prince has won with them. And I think that you see a succession of Prince getting his own way, that when he enters the early 90s, he kind of assumes that, you know, he's going to still get his own way. And you can kind of see why he would, but also there's certainly a touch of hubris in what he was doing at the time. He kind of couldn't really see that the quality of work wasn't necessarily there. He was more convinced that people would just accept what he had to give them. He wasn't really questioning himself or his artistic or quality control at the time. We were working on new music that was not intended to be released by one of them. Prince didn't want... Uh, some material actually did come out. I mean, it all came out eventually. But uh, at the time, we were working on a collection of songs that included stuff that was on come and stuff that ended up being on the Gold Experience. And for a while, we rehearsed all of it without knowing which album was coming out next, what was the sequence, how the songs are going to be separated between the two. And I don't think Prince had figured out a way yet to sidestep Warner Brothers and, and do it on his own. The dispute with Warner Brothers had a direct effect on the environment and the fact that you know Prince would basically be talking to somebody at Warner Brothers or his lawyer, and we'd come in for rehearsal, and we could call up into his office, and he needed to vent. He needed to explain, you know, himself for his Sure, he needed somebody to bounce his ideas off and talk to. So we'd get up there, and he'd be, you know, visibly upset, and you know what Mo Austin said to me? Oh, wow. You know, and, uh, so I think his, his consciousness was inundated by the, the ongoing. And with corporate restructuring kicking off the civil war at Warner's, Prince's former allies at the label were being steadily purged. The unsentimental, commercially focused executives who took their place had little patience for truculent outbursts from their artists and began to dismantle the empire that Prince had managed to build during his years at the top. Paisley Park Records, his own label and vehicle for many of his side projects, functioned as a joint venture, with Warner's underwriting distribution and marketing. Although some of the product emanating from Paisley Park had been widely derided as indulgences for Prince's latest girlfriend, there were also legends of times past on the roster, including George Clinton and Mavis Staples. Warners, however, were sure that the whole enterprise was an uncommercial folly, tolerated as a favour to an artist who repaid them with insults. In February 1994, they pulled the plug on Paisley Park, 
withdrawing their distribution deal and sinking the business. They certainly were looking to needle prints and you know, withdraw their support from something, but he obviously still wanted to keep it going. He still had things that he wanted to release, side projects he wanted to release, and I think in withdrawing their support from that, it was a bit of a stab at you know, he Prince who was just... going out saying Warners aren't letting me do what I want. Well, they said, well, if you're going to do that, then we're going to show you what I'm going to let you do what I want, and you can't have I don't understand why he didn't just, um, you know, cut free of them when he had a chance. Artist, period. Do it all myself. period, but I don't think he'd a new type of Rides back to the show.
Oh, we're not going to let you do it all one. You can't have the money to carry on doing it. When Prince started Playbill in the 80s, he had so many side projects and so, many, so much extra material that he could give away. It was kind of seen as an extension of the Prince world in a way. He had groups like The Time, he had Sheilery, he had Vanity Six, he had later had Apollonia Six. These are side projects that he just seemed to be able to have enough material for his own work, for their work. Odd songs, you know, Manic Monday went out to the Bangles. <laughs> Stupid song, I hate that song. It seemed that he could build like a P-Funk style empire. P-Funk? He didn't feel as love. What the P-Funk? Those albums were fun to do because we could step out of the box and we could do a totally different sound from what Prince was doing. You know, but there were still elements of that sound that still tied it all together. And I think at that time, that sound for me, was that was some of the funnest stuff we ever did. I thought it was funky. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, it's, you know, these things happen, you know, and you just have to move on to the next thing, you know, and that was heartbreaking, you know, but you move on. That was kind of in the same creative territory as uh, another thing we worked on called The Undertaker, and I think this was also where Prince began to realize that he wasn't legally able to circumvent the system. Something happened with the Undertaker. Like he wanted to just press like a thousand copies and just just give it to friends and you know concerned parties. And um, somebody at Warner Brothers said, "You can't do that. <laughs> you can't." And it was just it's covers. It's like honky tonk woman, and you know, and then there was some freedom. I wish he... Full control. Full control. Of his own career. by a cynical, autocratic, and self-serving corporation, Prince made one of the most drastic and infamous moves of his career. He stopped being Prince. On June the 7th, 1993, Prince announced that he had changed his name to the unpronounceable glyph from the Love Symbol album, that he would no longer turn in any new material to Warner Brothers, and that his contractual obligations would be met by releasing old souls from the vault. His core fan base remained supportive, but the wider public were perplexed. Though his PR team loftily asked that he be called The Artist, 
He was more commonly referred to as the artist formerly known as Prince, and universally mocked by a media industry that was sure he had finally vacated his senses. The artist formerly known as Prince is one of the most controversial and most mysterious figures in rock. He's even asked to be referred to only as a symbol, but for clarity in this story, we'll call him Prince. That extraordinary moment where Prince changes his name to the symbol, a symbol that nobody knew how to print. Warner Brothers actually was on the hook to produce, like, little round discs full of the software to hand out to people at uh, magazines so you could reprint Prince's name the way he wanted it printed. Crazy. My name is very spiritual to me. It has a great deal of spiritual meaning. And uh, um, one day maybe I'll hear a sound that will best give me the feeling of what it's supposed to be. But for right now, I just go by the look of it. At that moment, his complaint is that Warner's isn't giving him ownership of his intellectual property. That's the way we would phrase it today. Uh, it becomes an intellectual property battle. I made this music, why don't I own it? Why don't I own my masters? Wait, why don't I own my publishing? Um, all things that Prince continues to be obsessed with to this day. Uh, and yet, at that time, these were things that you know, musicians didn't talk about that much. Now, not that unusual to find either uh, an indie musician talking about, well, I want to stay in an indie label because I want to own my work, or to find someone, a veteran artist, saying, I'm suing my record company to get back my rights because under copyright law, and then it just becomes a lecture. But at that time, we weren't really used to artists making these complaints. It seemed like belly aching. I mean, it seemed like someone who was famous and rich complaining that he wasn't rich enough. The name change, you could look at it a lot of different ways. I mean, the, the undeniable fact is that the name change made him kind of a buffoon. It certainly became the subject matter of talk show jokes and so on. He had to see that happen to coming. I can't imagine he didn't. That's right. The artist formerly. What do you, what do you call him? Well, he, you got to hold up this thing. <laughs> no, seriously, what do you call well, him? This right here. <laughs> oh. Can I call him Prince? Oh no! Yeah, you have to hold up the thing because he's the artist. Hey, oh Lord! The dispute and the name change were unquestionably damaging to Prince, especially the name change. I think I'll call him Prince. All right. Why don't you just get a cab and, and go home? All right. Check it out. His behavior had been. Strange. Um, his public behavior had been strange in a lot of ways leading up to it. Uh, and when you do something like change your name to an unpronounceable symbol, sure, it's an interesting publicity stunt. But if you're at a news organization, let alone a record company, okay, when you're talking about the artist's name, the amount of uh, 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 production work that goes into simply rendering that. Is, is a whole other thing to say nothing of the public perception of listening to Prince. The last year of his life, he's in a state where he's just totally in a freedom to improv and experience <laughs> and be wild and try new things. One of Prince's defining qualities was his ability to cross over from black funk and soul to white rock and roll. With no better demonstration than his guitar solo. 
at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. It was such an amazing moment because you know that all of those musicians like Tom Petty and Jeff Lynne went to a rehearsal and thought they knew exactly how this whole thing was going to go down. And then out comes Prince, basically from the shadows on the edge of the stage, and takes an extremely long guitar solo and makes it all about him. And everyone, you know, from these like kind of iconic players, they're all just turning and going, oh, oh no, <laughs> like what is happening? And you can tell that he was playing sarcastically. Yeah, I know you guys don't like me. So like, you know, I know you guys are never going to truly, you know, uh, say out of your mouths that I'm the best, but I am. You know what I'm saying? And then when he's done, he throws his guitar and walks out. Boom. Doesn't shake any hands and say, thank you guys, I really appreciate it. Doesn't say shit. Probably jumped in the car and left. That's rock and roll, man. St. Bart's in the Caribbean, December 31st. Prince is playing an exclusive New Year's Eve party. He tweets his arrival, strictly business. The party is being hosted by Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich at his private estate. Prince is photographed by a paparazzi, leaving his helicopter and walking with a cane, an accessory he was using more and more in his last year. Footage from outside captures Prince owning the stage as he performs 1999. Inside, the star-studded guest list includes Leonardo DiCaprio, Chris Rock and Stella McCartney, who tweeted the set list. Everyone's losing their mind over Prince bringing their phones out even to get their minute clip or a little Snapchat video of him. They just are in awe. Prince plays a moving rendition of Nothing Compares to You. A song about heartbreak and loss he wrote 30 years before. And was made famous by Sinead O'Connor in 1990 with her impassioned version filmed entirely in close ups. Often appearing on lists of the greatest songs, it's a testament to Prince's skill as a songwriter. January 10th, 2016. Prince is putting on a special concert at Paisley Park that will be unlike anything he's ever done before.
Paisley Park is transformed by local workers for this special one-off event. He will perform solo for the first time in his career. When I first heard that, I was like, we ain't gonna do that. Don't fire the dancers, don't fire the band. Prince never wanted to perform by himself. That was the whole point. That's why he had so many bands. He wasn't sure about it because it's something he hadn't done before. But I had encouraged him to do it because I felt people needed to hear him. Just him. Because I had gotten so spoiled with listening to him and just jamming one-on-one. -on -one. I just thought it was its so great. And so I was really happy that he did it. Um, and I'm sad that I didn't get to, to see that concert. January the 21st. The piano and a microphone gala event. Prince is heard here in a fan recording, revealing the special nature of the performance. This is the first time I've done a concert alone. And we were here the first night, so... Congratulations. To both of us. Pictured on a strip backstage, and framed by his iconic love symbol, Prince plays songs from his first 10 albums, recalling his career as fans sing along in harmony. I think he was just in a real nostalgic and kind of retrospective mindset. When he was eight, the first instrument Prince learned was the piano. Now, almost 50 years later, he brings it center stage, dedicating the piano and microphone performance to the memory of his father. Here he was talking about his father and reflecting on how his dad played piano and his dad was in his own band, the Prince Rogers Trio, which is where Prince got his name. Having fought for control of his music, the global star now releases the CD version of Hit and Run Phase 2 in his own unique fashion at his local record store. We got a phone call from one of Prince's camp and brought up the opportunity about Prince is coming out with a new album, Hit and Run Phase 2. Would you guys be interested in releasing it for us? The answer was, of course, yeah, we'd love to, you know. Tuesday, we got it, put it in the store. By Thursday, he said, yeah, go ahead, put it online. Thursday night, we had a glitch in our website. Even though we had it, it said out of stock. Our website's run by a third-party company, and Prince calls him and asks, what the problem was, is it fixed, is it going to happen again? I think Prince really just wanted to work with people he could trust and people that would tell him the truth. Prince was hands-on with the release of his album, controlling every move. February the 16th. Prince kicks off his piano and microphone tour in Melbourne, Australia. Just moments before he takes the stage at the State Theatre, he learns that his former protege, Denise Matthews, known as Vanity, has died age 57. His emotional response was filmed by a fan. Someone dear to us has passed away, so I'm going to dedicate this song to her. And, uh, he dedicates a heartfelt medley of Little Red Corvette and Dirty Mind to his former girlfriend. Oh, yeah. 
The tour's opening night was a success, with critics and fans posting rave reviews. This was the most intimate, most amazing concert of Prince I've been to, and I've been to every Prince concert. Four days later, Prince is in Sydney for the next leg of his tour and meets up with his favourite photographer, who he's asked to cover the event. I know he was really excited about performing at the Opera House because he said he was so happy that they could get that venue at such short notice and he loved it there. And he said, you just walk around and see where you want to shoot the show from. I said, the best spot to shoot you is right up on stage. And he said, I think it's better if you, if you stay back a little bit because it might stop that connection between me and the audience, like if you're right in the middle. That evening, the Opera House is appropriately lit for Prince's show. My favourite photographs of him are those that I've shot on stage when he's performing because you see the true essence of him. It looks so amazing from the stage because the candelabra is, everything was framed really beautifully and he looks so good close up. After we finished the shoot, I was packing up and he said, oh, do you want to have some dinner? I said, yeah, okay. When I left the room, I remember feeling very, very strongly that I wasn't going to see him again. And I didn't know why I felt that. When I look at the pictures now, it's incredibly sad. It, yeah, they're hard to look at now. March the 3rd. Prince is back on American soil. Walking with a cane and looking gaunt, Prince is filmed for local TV as he arrives at the Oracle Arena to watch a game of basketball. The Warriors would like to give a very special warm welcome to our guest this evening, Grammy Award winner, Prince! The next day, it's Prince's turn to entertain, playing solo in a stripped-back show in the same stadium to an audience of 17,000. The concert had only been announced three days before, so it was a complete sellout. I'm on the front row. It's Beatlemania in Oakland. Everybody's you know, trying to get tickets. Everybody's... Into a time machine, transporting fans back through his career with electric performances of Sign of the Times, Nothing Compares to You, and Kiss. Here is a man at the top of his game. Yet in less than seven weeks, he would be dead. I said, you know, he's the last one. Bowie's gone. Michael's gone. And he's had this feeling. There's nobody remotely close to this level of genius left. Flamboyant as ever, Prince leaves the stage on a bicycle. Later that night, Prince meets with Van Jones. And I had these young activists with me to the VIP room. And they're standing there against the wall, their eyes, the biggest plates, just looking at him, just blinking. 
you know, that's, you know, Prince, you know. And I said, Prince, I want you to meet some of the best young activists we have here in the Bay Area. He goes, I want to thank you for your work. They still talk about it. They still talk about it. You know, they shook his hand or whatever, and and I get the activists out, and I, I walk downstairs, I look back, and I just said, man, you know, this last one. I never saw him again. March the 12th, 2016. Just over a month before Prince's death. While at home during a break in his tour, Prince discovers a Ray Charles tribute show is in town. I produced a Ray Charles show called Hallelujah, We Love Him So, and it's at actually this theater on that stage. The staff from the Chan Aston said that there's Prince is interested in seeing the show, and I actually said, he's interested in seeing this show? Really? <laughs> A lifelong fan, Prince decides to drive to the Chanhassen Diner Theatre to see the show. He arrives once the performance is underway. But instead of taking a seat, Prince makes his way backstage. We're playing and the piano player, Scotty Miller, was doing a great solo and all of a sudden I hear a guitar. And I'm thinking it's our guitar player, Stephen Morgan, but it's not. And then I look and there's Prince playing the solo. You know, Prince can play any style, but he played this beautiful, lots of space blues, and it was perfect. He just kept playing the solo, and so as the band leader, I'm just going, keep going, keep going, you know, as long as you want to go, Prince. <laughs> It actually was, from you know what we found out later, was the last time he actually played with a, with a band. It was, it was amazing. March the seventeenth, New York. Prince is on his way to the Avenue nightclub in the Meatpacking District. Ever unpredictable, he's going there to make a surprising announcement. There were all these people I knew who had just been plucked out of their afternoons and evenings and Friday night plans. All these nerdy book people, all these cool friends of Prince who I did not know, um, and, <laughs> and then some famous people. Billie Jean started playing, and on a glass catwalk above us, Prince descended on this set of glass stairs with a big cloud of hair, and he just walked elegantly onto the catwalk and stood above us, <laughs> and he said, the good people of Random House have made me an offer I can't refuse. <laughs> and he was writing a memoir. And he said, there ain't nothing random about this funk, and <laughs> he put on a pair of huge sunglasses, and he said, now I can see. After years of avoiding talking about his past, Prince was now embracing it. It is rumoured that he wrote 50 pages of his memoir, called The Beautiful Ones. But to date, still nothing has emerged. March 21st, 
exactly a month before Prince's death. Prince is in Canada to resume his piano and mic tour. Fan footage records him getting a standing ovation in Montreal, then Toronto, where the two shows are sold out. Tickets are ranging from about 150 bucks to 350 bucks, and we're told it's going to be an absolute party inside. This is bucket list. Oh yeah, definitely. Especially small venue, it's amazing. He's on fine form and plays heroes in evocative tribute to David Bowie, who had passed away earlier in the year. April the 7th, Atlanta. Without warning, Prince cancels his two shows at the Fox Theatre, as reported by Channel 2 News. I've been in touch with theater officials just about five minutes ago. They told me they're still working on figuring out the rescheduled date for both of those shows. But meanwhile, the musician's illness is no doubt disappointing hundreds of fans. Cancel the show. Tickets already sold? Same day? That's weird. You just think to yourself, the flu? Prince doesn't get sick. April the 14th. A week later, Prince heads to Atlanta for his rescheduled show. Fan footage captures him giving a sincere apology to the audience. We'll sit right in the third row and enjoy ourselves thoroughly. It was awesome. It was amazing. assume that something so minimal could not cause that magnitude of sound and energy to swell up in the room, but it did, it most certainly did, and it was wonderful. So proud to have been there. This was the last time Prince would ever perform on stage, and fittingly, he closed his final show of the night with a haunting rendition of Purple Rain. gentleman says, uh, you know, Prince would like to see you. I was like, oh, okay. You know, so we went upstairs. I didn't want to bother him, you know what I'm saying? I just, you know, I didn't think he was sick or anything, you know what I mean? I just, I, I just know that he had, anything would be just kind of exhausted after doing uh, two, two shows back to back. Plane and go home. So we left, 
And that was it. April the 15th. Prince flies home with his girlfriend, Judith Hill, but passes out mid-flight. The pilot is forced to make an emergency landing in Illinois, calling for an ambulance around 1 a.m. An unresponsive passenger, they're not sure male, female, or age. Unresponsive passengers, they need an ambulance. News channels around the world cover the breaking story, as first responders revive Prince on the runway, with two doses of a drug typically used to reverse the effects of an opioid overdose. I was one of the first people that got notified that there had been trouble on the plane. And it was a difficult moment because he really had been sick with the flu. An ambulance rushes him to a local hospital, but he discharges himself and flies home. Despite his ordeal, the following night, Prince invites his fans from the local community to Paisley Park for a last-minute dance party. I think Prince was pretty eager to show people that he was okay. He didn't perform, and there was really no promise that he would perform. As with many nights at Paisley Park, you just kind of go out and see what happens. But he did come out and greet the crowd just for a few brief moments. And he's saying the famous, everything is all right. When you hear news like this, give it a few days. Wait a few days. Save your prayers. Everything's all good. And then he came into the other room and showed us his new piano, the purple piano, and his new guitar. April the 17th. He tweets, feeling rejuvenated, feeling inspired, feeling loved. And he's seen riding his bike in Chanhassen, in this footage recorded by a local fan. When I started seeing pictures of him riding his bike in Chanhassen, I'm thinking, he's fine. And here, Prince's last few days become murky. Prince leaves Paisley Park on his fourth visit that week to a pharmacy in Chanhassen. He buys painkillers prescribed for pain to his hip, caused by years of dancing. Listen, he wasn't going out there and, and, you know, trying to have recreational drug experiences. His hip was killing him. Concerned by his increasing reliance on painkillers, Prince's camp called California-based addiction specialist, Dr. Howard Kornfeld. Unable to fly himself, he puts his son, Andrew, on a plane with medication to treat opioid addiction. The biggest tragedy which nobody's talked about is that help was on the way. Early next morning, Andrew Kornfeld arrives at Paisley Park. Early next morning, Andrew Kornfeld arrives at Paisley April the 17th. He tweets, feeling rejuvenated, feeling inspired, feeling loved. And he's seen riding his bike in Chanhassen, in this footage recorded by a local fan. When I started seeing pictures of him riding his bike in Chanhassen, I'm thinking, he's fine. And here, Prince's last few days become murky. Prince leaves Paisley Park on his fourth visit that week to a pharmacy in Chanhassen. He buys painkillers prescribed for pain to his hip, caused by years of dancing. Listen, he wasn't going out there and, and, you know, trying to have recreational drug experiences. His hip was killing him. 
Concerned by his increasing reliance on painkillers, Prince's camp called California-based addiction specialist, Dr. Howard Kornfeld. Unable to fly himself, he puts his son Andrew on a plane with medication to treat opioid addiction. The biggest tragedy which nobody's talked about is that help was on the way. Early next morning, Andrew Kornfeld arrives at Paisley Park. But Prince, who spent the night alone, can't be found. He's discovered unconscious in a lift. At 9.43 a.m., Kornfeld calls 911. As news stations would later report, an urgent request is put out for an ambulance. It would later be recorded that Prince had died of a fentanyl overdose. You just threw the cue to Rosie. Not be here. It was completely a shock. It just hasn't been that long, so. Yeah. I'm sure it would mean a lot to anyone for some music god like him to come in and believe in him, but him believing in me is like the biggest deal. So. I felt invincible. Because, you know, even though I'm just Robin, I got Batman, all right? I got the big guy. So you can only keep me tied up for so long before you're going to kick in the door. I got Batman backing me up, buddy. And you feel like you can go out in these communities, you can do things, you can go into Silicon Valley, and you can make people do stuff because you're here for him, you know? And then he's just gone. <laughs> You never realize how much he was irreplaceable. And you never realize how much he meant to the world. Till he was I just thought that rats. Yeah, sad. Sad, man. Crime and fraud, terrifying. Prince, super cut. If you're 45 and older and live in the United States and you still don't have life insurance, we're going to show you how. mid-90s, reports began to surface that Prince, one of the world's most successful recording artists, had fallen into serious dispute with his record label. Claiming that his art had been taken hostage by merciless corporate interests, 
Prince announced that he was at war with the music business and that the whole industry needed to be torn down and reorganized. I think, like most artists, they don't really investigate until it's happening to them. And I think that's pretty much what Prince found himself doing, is examining more closely. Like, well, how does this work? Prince is astute, man. He likes to read and share ideas. So the more he got into the literature about the music business, the more upset he got, <laughs> you know? And how it's designed. I mean, it's, it's, it's systemic. It, it, it's, that's what it does. It, it, you exploit an artist, and they get paid a mere pittance compared to what you make. Initially interpreted by the public as an obscure contractual disagreement, the dispute proved to be the opening installment in the remaking of the music business at the close of the millennium. Fired by his fight with Warner Brothers, Prince set out to articulate new concepts in the making and selling of music, at a time when the digital age was threatening to bring the existing order to its knees. In the 80s, Prince revolutionised music. He invented the Minneapolis sound and he sort of brought a whole new style of music, a whole new fusion music, white and black, funk and rock and everything into one big thing. It was you know, just Prince, that's what it was. He took the way music sounded to a whole new level. In the 90s, uh, when his music was less revolutionary, he revolutionised the business, he revolutionised the music industry. And time after time, what he does has vision and foresight and is ahead of its time and it turns out that not only could he do that musically he did it with business as well yet he's not going to get the credit for that at the time the significance of prince's message was largely overlooked his behavior was received as surreal and eccentric by a world that was yet to discern the forces of change that were gathering on the horizon Routinely dismissed as a spoiled, clownish sideshow, Prince's profile suffered badly and his new work was increasingly ignored. But when the change arrived, it became clear that Prince had been a visionary and he found himself restored to prominence as a leading figure in the modern landscape of art and music. He was just out of sync at that time. His time had passed and he had to wait for it to come around again, which it inevitably did. By the time it came around again, it's like now he's comfortable with being a legend, playing the music that he makes, not trying to be a hip-hop artist or a this or a that, and just embracing who he is and what his gifts are. And the, the audience was there for him to the point where he tours more successfully today than he did at his peak. So without even selling any records, he sells more tickets than he did with Purple Rain. Go figure. He stepped out on faith by even putting out records independently and doing things like selling through the newspaper, which is why he's gotten a lot of flack from those, the powers that be. They don't appreciate that because then that stimulates the minds of people who are coming up. And as you see, even the younger generations now, oh, it's just academic now. This is what they do. So yes, it has helped him. And whether he gets all the credit now or, you know, 20 or 50 or 100 years from now, he will go down in history as one who did something that was revolutionary.
In the summer of 1992, Prince entered into negotiations with Warner Brothers over a new recording contract. Prince had first been signed by Warners as a talented but raw teenager back in 1977, but over the course of his tenure at the label, his status as an artist had clearly changed. During the period of his ascent, the music industry had been drawing ever-escalating, mind-bending profits, and Prince had noted that the other stars in the business, including the marquee names at Warners, were now being paid big money. Madonna is one of their artists. R.E.M. has become a Warner Brothers artist. And these artists are having huge hits and signing big deals. You reach a point in the 90s where Madonna and Michael Jackson have signed very, very big deals with their record companies. $30 million, $60 million deals. And Prince is angry because Prince sees himself as a greater artist than Michael Jackson or Madonna. And arguably, he's right. Unlike Michael Jackson and Madonna, you can leave Prince by himself in the studio and he will walk out with a hit record. He's built his own studio, he has a self-contained world, he can churn out hit records, so Prince wants to be paid a lot of money. He wanted the headline to be $100 million deal. And he became so fixated on waking up to see that headline in the newspapers that I could argue he didn't care how he got it, at least so it seemed. $100 million reflected the general self-confidence of the music business at the turn of the decade. During the 1970s, as rock and roll matured, the appeal of black music expanded and the public appetite for their product proved insatiable, the major labels had perceived an opportunity to generate enormous sums of money. In the 1980s, they had consolidated and the commercial face of music changed radically. The record companies that had started life as the fiefdoms of wealthy music enthusiasts and charismatic impresarios had transfigured into enormous corporate concerns. Multinational entertainment conglomerates staffed by sharp executives with one eye on stock prices and the other on an apparently limitless torrent of revenue. Artists' profiles became ever larger, with MTV and stadium tours amplifying their cultural presence and global reach. Of the superstar acts that were made in the 80s, Prince was arguably rivaled only by Michael Jackson and Madonna in terms of fame and significance as a solo performer. He had carried that level of standing into the early 90s, and by the time that his contract fell due for renewal, Prince was once again busy at the top of the charts with 1991's Diamonds and Pearls. By the early 90s, Prince had more or less come out of the 80s as sort of one of the biggest stars of that decade, and he'd made himself the first artist since the Beatles to hold simultaneously the number one single, album, and film position for When Doves Cry and Purple Rain. Although his sounds had slightly deteriorated since that period, he'd continued to release a string of albums, you know, each more artistically questing than the last, and sort of, he remained a massive, massive name, sort of, as the 80s came to a close. He, he started to slip a little bit with... Graffiti Bridge, for instance, which is kind of a follow-up to Purple Rain, is a, a terrible, terrible film that he made that sort of uh, uh, made him look like some of his artistic decisions were maybe not the best that he was making as the decade came to a close, but he also had a phenomenal success with the Batman soundtrack. So he ended the decade kind of in a weird position where on one hand, you know, some of his ideas weren't proven as successful as older ones, and on the other hand, he was still making massive selling albums. Uh, the Diamonds and Pearls album that came after Graffiti Bridge had none of the concepts, you know, none 
of the storyline. It was just an album, a collection of songs that had six singles off the back of it. It was a massive seller. It sold about six million or something like that. And uh, so when he entered contract negotiations with Warners, he was actually on a bit of a high again. came at a time where Prince arguably needed a hit record. His contract was up with Warner Brothers due for renegotiation. I don't think there was ever any indication that he really wanted to go elsewhere. Perhaps he, he understood, he would never admit to, but perhaps he understood that the other majors weren't of the, the cultural proclivity to indulge him the way Mo Austin and Lenny Warnaker at Warner's had. Diamonds and Pearls came after some records that were not as successful commercially as his records in the 80s had been. And as an artist getting ready to go into contract renegotiation, it certainly benefited him to have a more commercial successful record. And Diamonds and Pearls gave him that record. Though as an artist, Prince may have had few peers, from Warner's perspective, the business case was perhaps not as compelling. The label had historically been incredibly supportive of a musician who was often idiosyncratic in his work and activity, at times willfully difficult. Under the stewardship of record executives Mo Austin and Lenny Warrenker, Warner Brothers had established a reputation as one of the most artist-friendly labels in the industry. Austin and Warrenker had started out in the 1960s and retained some of the idealism of that era. Their ethos was one of allowing musicians the space to develop and express their creativity over the long term, free from commercial pressure or the demand for instant success. Prince had enjoyed the freedom to pursue the full spectrum of projects that caught his muse without oversight. The label had assented to his desire to be self-directed and to work without a producer. They had backed his forays into filmmaking, and they had agreed to invest in setting up his own label, Paisley Park Records. Although Prince had reciprocated by delivering hits and prestige, he was prone to taking unpredictable turns, including withdrawing albums prior to release, refusing to do press interviews, and on one occasion demanding that Warners issue his work unpromoted. Decisions that struck the label as being nothing short of sabotage. When measured against the other big-name acts of the era, in hard-nosed financial terms, Prince was not necessarily a safe bet. I wouldn't have thought that Prince was, strictly speaking, as bankable as Madonna and Michael Jackson. These guys were selling phenomenal records every time they put something out. And as you can see through Prince's sales throughout the late 80s, his sales had been slipping as the decade came to an end. His albums were sort of more high concept pieces, like Love Sexy kind of confused as many people as many people that bought it. He was making strange business decisions by the end of the 80s, particularly with the Love Sexy tour, to sort of tour in Europe, ignore the US market, and he did the same with Sign of the Times, not make so much money as home, go to his European fan base, whereas the other guys had a more worldwide touring, album-selling setup. The problem they were having with Prince was that he was producing too many records too quickly, uh, faster than their promotion and marketing machine could really digest, faster than the marketplace and the media could digest. We were in an era where most artists would release records anywhere from between two and three years apart, and he arguably could have had two records a year if he had wanted to. And he did want to, because he was, he was of the mind that a record was like a newspaper. When it was finished, it was of, a, it was of that time, 
and I finished this song last night in the studio. I want people to hear it today. It's relevant to today. I produced it today. It's about how I feel today. People should hear it today. And of course, the legitimate argument was that radio wasn't prepared to accept that much product from any single artist either. And as a result, it made it difficult for the label to promote it. So there really was a legitimate argument to space things out. It just didn't fit him as an artist. And when the parties eventually settled around a table to discuss the terms of a new deal, both had priorities that they were keen to achieve. For Prince, it was the figure stamped across the contract, $100 million to confirm him as the most valuable artist in the business. He got his wish. When negotiations concluded, statements were released to the press announcing that Prince had re-signed with Warner Brothers in the biggest deal of all time. He and I actually had some differences about how crucial that headline really was because when you get into the nuts and bolts of what makes a deal worth that kind of money, you know, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. There's going to be something in the negotiations, in the fine print, that you may wake up one morning and not really like once you get past the headline. And that was my argument. So I approached it pretty cautiously because I realized he really, really had an, an, an astoundingly supportive, you could even say indulgent, arrangement with Warners. They were clearly losing a ton of money on Paisley Park, the label, because it was not cross-collateralized with his royalties. All the loss on Paisley Park was a write-off. Didn't come out of Prince's pocket, which is part of the reason why he didn't care and could keep turning out these, these kind of self-indulgent projects. Clearly, Warners wanted to put a stop to that. But at the same time, how do you stop that? How do you do that without annoying the artist that you desperately want to keep? The artist who, as, as a Warner Brothers artist, is worth so much, um, not just in terms of sales, but in terms of the cachet. Because when you have an artist like Prince, it's attractive to signing newer artists. I mean, he's a flag waver for you as a brand name. So they were in a bind where they were looking for any means with which to cut their losses on Paisley Park, the label, without doing something that would affect their relationship with him as a creative entity. Um, and inadvertently, he gave them that out. He gave them the means that they needed by saying, I want this $100 million deal. I'm fixated on, my, on the advances I get from my records. That's really the most important thing to me. And everything else be damned at the end of the day. Prince came out with a deal. They gave him a 20% royalty rate, and he was promised $10 million on every new album, providing that the previous album sold 5 million copies. So Prince came out of the business meeting trumpeting that he'd had this great $100 million deal that he'd just signed with Warner Brothers. Now, as promised, those reports on popular culture. When RCA Records signed Elvis Presley back in 1956, they paid $35,000. Unheard of at the time. Here's an unheard of figure for our times. $100 million. That's the deal Prince cut with Warner Brothers Records. A 10 million advance, 10, mi 10 million each for six albums, the rest in royalties. More than Michael Jackson, more than Madonna. And Prince gets a title, Corporate Vice President. Madonna is worth 60 million, his is worth 100 million. It's not. It's actually not. There are articles immediately at that moment in the press saying, uh, it's worth up to $100 million. Uh, I, I know these people working with Prince are saying it's a $100 million deal, but it's only worth $100 million 
if each one of his next five records sells five million copies. Now, in the 90s, that seemed possible. Today, of course it seems impossible. And even then, it seemed only possible, not probable. Gearing up to launch a new album and a tour right now is Prince, whose upcoming LP, Diamonds and Pearls, will unveil his latest band. Prince stopped by his label, Warner Brothers Records, last week to give staffers a sneak preview of his upcoming Diamonds and Pearls album. I'm Diamond and this is Pearl. Any contract where an artist guarantees that they're going to sell 5 million copies of anything is risky, to say the least. But Prince was in a very good position to do that at the time. Creatively, it's hard to say. The Muse is an unreliable thing, and even though he was enormously successful, if not necessarily as innovative as he had been in the past, he had, he'd had huge commercial success with Diamonds and Pearls, and he seemed poised to continue it. Diamonds and Pearls had sold 5.8 million copies. 5.8, not 10, not 12, and not 6. It had sold 5.8 million copies, so he had to keep at that level. And generally speaking, you don't top yourself. A reasonable expectation is you're going to sell about 30% less. 30% less of 5.8 would be under 5 million. Therefore, he's not going to get his $100 million. And in point of fact, he's probably going to end up owing the record company money. Because all that money is, well, in advance. It's a loan. And uh, it doesn't take Prince long to realize this. As to whether the deal worked out, which is everybody's question, one very simple answer. A year and a half later, he had slave on his face. With his new deal secured, Prince refocused his attention on music. Though the terms of his agreement now set a high bar for the commercial performance of any upcoming releases. Prince had assembled a band, the new power generation, to whom he had given co-billing on Diamonds and Pearls, and had moved away from being a solo, electronically driven artist to working more collaboratively within a traditional group setup. Diamonds and Pearls and its accompanying tour had been enormously successful, and a follow-up record was almost complete before the ink had dried on the contract with Warners. Keen to maintain momentum and push into the 90s with a new sound, the band worked intensively in the studio for what would become popularly known as Love Symbol, after the unpronounceable symbol that took the place of a title. We were really, really tight after the Diamonds and Pearls tour and that album. So we were just on fire. We were, you know, the band was just hype, you know, ready to go in the studio, ready to record, you know. I mean, it was just a fantastic position at that time. It was a very positive environment with the band and with Prince, I think he was happy with the singles that were being chosen. The sound of the new power generation, I think, was much more commercial than what Prince was doing prior to. More organic, I think, and less electronically driven than a lot of Prince's work around that time. Maybe more in the tradition of soul music, some things, you know, Diamonds and Pearls and uh, Cream was kind of, kind of, a lot of it was, the throw, there was a throwback, but there was a modern element too. But I think it's it, what made that period of, uh, of Prince's catalog stand out is that he leaned much more on the ensemble. I think he wanted to do something that was a little out of the box because you know, Diamonds and Pearls was a lot. It was commercial, pretty commercial, actually. I mean, it was like kind of asymmetrical, but very well done album. But it was a lot more commercial than things he had done. I think he wanted to do something else, something you know, that was more expressive of his creative side, you know. He always tries different styles of music, you know. We grew up together as kids, 
you know, we used to jam and play all night as kids, you know, funky, you know, because, I mean, we had all the, all the great funk records at that time, you know. So that's in his DNA. I mean, that's just something that's going to come out anyway. But I think once we had that particular in that band MPG, it was, that was just a whole nother monster. That whole band was just funky as all get out. It was just a great band. The new power generation just taking control. Yeah. Introducing my take. Tony M, Kirky J, Damon D. The lineup of the new power generation included a rapper, Tony M, who featured prominently on the Love Symbol album as Prince attempted to address the changes sweeping popular music during the late 80s and early 90s. The coming of hip-hop had made a major impact on black music and culture in particular. The funk and soul jams of Prince's generation were subject to a wholesale clear-out as rap became all-conquering. But by the early 90s, hip-hop itself was beginning to evolve and the party records, political polemics, and social commentaries of its formative years had given way to the aggressive, nihilistic dystopias of gangster rap, a world away from Prince's traditional frame of reference. Love Symbol made a conscious effort to address the zeitgeist, but came up short. Alongside a narrative concept and spoken word segues that confused audiences, the album's melange of funk, soul, and R&B included an attempt to incorporate rap, most notably with the singles Sexy MF, and My Name is Prince. Both tracks charted poorly in the US, placing at numbers 66 and 36 respectively. Coming after the recent hits from Diamonds and Pearls, it represented a drastic decline in fortunes. As for Prince's fabled $100 million, it had evaporated. Released in October 1992, Love Symbol struggled to achieve 1 million sales, far short of the minimum 5 million required to secure his advance from Warner's. The new era had got off to a shaky start. Those singles, My Name is Prince and Sexy, uh, were not, uh, they were critical successes, but I think that when you establish a, a, a wide audience and then you start, you know, <laughs> getting more explicit, when, once you're on, on a certain type of exploration, some people are going to be turned off. You know, but I think as an artist, you have to stay excited about what it is you're doing. And, uh, you know, so Grandmama probably didn't buy that Love Symbol album, but that's all right. You know, it's somebody did. <laughs> <laughs> trends and what the sales were going to be and all that. I mean, everybody wants to hit records. I'm not saying he didn't want to hit, but he wanted to do what was in his heart. He wanted to do music that was coming out of his heart. He's not going to go, I want to do Diamonds and Pearls too. the three ladies, or you know what I mean? It's, it's what's, you know, coming through him. Prince and the New Power Generation take control. Act one. Prince looked to give Love Symbol a boost by going out on his first U.S. tour in five years. 
Commencing in March 93, Act One took part of the concept behind the album, a love story centered on his future wife, Maite Garcia, and reimagined it as a theatrical live performance. With a second set dedicated to the hits and the shows staged in small, intimate venues, the tour proved popular and tickets moved fast. Oh, it was sold out every night. <laughs> at that time, we were just, we were a polished and well-oiled machine at that point, so we could turn a corner, you know, and he wanted to do something a little more theatrical for the show, which was cool because it was more like a, a theater tour. Uh, it was groundbreaking in a lot of ways, you know. Prince would show us the, uh, <laughs> like the reviews, and the reviews were stunning. They were incredible. Everywhere we went, it sold out. And the band was on fire, and it was just, we just had a, a great time. But the success of Act One failed to translate into greater sales of Love Symbol. Prince found fault with his label, claiming that their promotional efforts had been lackluster. Given that the album's third single, Seven, had recently broken the top ten, executives at Warner's responded with raised eyebrows. Seven had been their pick as first release, but they had agreed to Prince's demand that the notably less popular Sexy MF take precedence. When they asked him to slow the pace at which he submitted new material, Prince reacted badly, taking to the stage during the tour and inveighing against Warner Brothers. For their part, the label claimed that releasing as often as he wanted to would saturate the market, making it even harder to run a successful promotion. A full-blown dispute kicked off and started to filter into the public domain. That's their fault. That's not our fault. I mean, you know, I'm, if their machine can't keep up with us, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> What's he supposed to do? You know, he got to get his music out. I mean, within reason, if the material is good, it should be marketed. It should be put out. They should do videos for it. They should be able to go on tour and they should be able to have support and, you know, do the things that they're supposed to do and have a successful record. Record company gets paid, they get paid. The situation with Warner Brothers, with his audience as we were on tour, I, I think Prince was just trying to let them in to his world to a certain degree to let them know, let them know what he was going through. It was a monologue mostly, and then you know he says something about Warner Brothers, and then it's a lot of booing in the audience. <laughs> and uh, one night, I remember um, they started chanting like, "Yeah, F Warner Brothers." And Prince just kind of turned around with the mic, and he was kind of cracking up and looking at us like, you hear this? He just get on stage and berate his record label for more or less not letting him do what he wanted, um, which kind of also having just signed what he was proclaiming was a $100 million deal didn't really chime with, you know, the poor artist who had been held back by his record label because he just boasted having this great deal where his record label were giving him everything he wanted. Things were complicated at Warner Brothers at the time. There was a very big, uh, I called it the Civil War happening. I worked uh, at two different Warner labels during those years. There was a lot of battling going on at the top. His deal was seen as unfair or overly generous by a lot of the other artists there. And again, it comes back to ownership for him. I don't think he was ever able to accept the fact he didn't own his music. He didn't feel as loved by the label anymore, uh, which is strange because it was the same people he had been dealing with initially anyway for his entire career. And once those people were gone, once Mo Austin and Lenny Warrenker stepped away and had to answer to new bosses themselves, uh, things went from bad to worse. And he started submitting albums that were 
not only uncommercial, um, I would say in moments they were kind of unlistenable. And uh, he was clearly not bringing his A-list material to them. And he started putting, uh, he started putting out albums so quickly that uh, in order to get out of his contract that I think they may have even threatened legal action because he was, he was just putting out an al- trying to put out an album every six months. With the parties at an impasse, the argument quickly turned bitter. In the summer of 93, Prince presented Warners with a new Power Generation album, Gold Nigger. Side projects and collaborations with both protégés and other artists had been a long-standing feature of Prince's work, enabling him to make musical excursions and explore artistic concepts without the expectations attached to his core brand. But when Goldnigger unexpectedly landed at the label, they dug in their heels and flatly refused to release it. Prince was dismayed. He responded by pressing up the album himself, distributing through a telephone order service and merchandise stores at his shows. This foray into independence in turn provoked the ire of Warner Brothers, who dimly viewed it as a naked breach of contract. By this point, they wanted to release a best of, sort of consolidate his career a little bit, make sure they made a lot of money out of this, you know, all of the Prince hits album sort of thing. And Prince just kept bringing them new albums and new material. And he had another side project album, Gold Nigger, which was his new power generation album, fronted by Tony M, the terrible rapper. This was never going to sell, but Prince wanted Warners to release it. He had success with the time, he had success with Sheila Ree and all these other side projects of the 80s. But by the early 90s, the quality of work wasn't there. And so if Prince's own work isn't selling as well, they certainly weren't interested in releasing a side project that had no hope of selling at all. Ruggish, you know, looking like we were, you know, <laughs> some kind of gang. <laughs> but um, it was kind of just a throwback thing. It was we had worked on these tracks, and Prince had been driving around listening to it. He was just like, I really like this. You know, let's put it out. Those albums were fun to do because we could step out of the box and we could do a, a totally different sound from what Prince was doing. You know, but there were still elements of that sound that still tied it all together. And I think at that time, that sound for me was, that was some of the funnest stuff we ever did. I thought it was funky. (laughs) Yeah, and you know, it's, you know, these things happen, you know, and you just have to move on to the next thing, you know. And that was heartbreaking, you know, but you move on. Prince biopic. Warner's granted him leave to do so. And on February the 14th, 1994, the most beautiful girl in the world was issued globally with distribution support from the small independent label, Belmont. The litmus test was the most beautiful girl in the world. Put the one single out, got the money behind it, the promotion, maxi single, you know, we did the, the 
did the whole world on that song. With The Most Beautiful Girl in the World, they finally kind of gave him a chance to do that. I think they were fed up with the nagging, and I kind of think that they wanted it to fail. They, if they'd have believed that much in the song, they probably would have taken it for themselves. So what Prince did, he went off on his newly launched MPG record label. He ploughed $2 million into financing and promoting the song and had this great worldwide campaign. He really created this great hype around the song so that by the time it was ready to come out, everyone would, you know, this was a really big deal. It was unusual because I can't ever remember a superstar single being available outside of the normal distribution channels. Uh, it was harder to find than a lot of the other, uh, than, you know, your average releases were. And um, there was a mail order campaign uh, about it at the time. And it was fairly groundbreaking in terms of what he was later to do, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, in his career. He's always been looking for ways to go outside of the major label model. All of the stuff that happens in the 90s, you look back on it and you think, pioneer. This guy is a pioneer. At the time, what Warners was betting was, you want to release your music yourself? You think you know better than we do? And, by the way, there had been arguments between them about what to put out as singles before this, and generally Warners was correct and Prince was not. And so what Warners is saying is, you want to do this yourself? Go right ahead. It's going to cost you a lot of money. You'll see. You need us. You don't really understand radio promotion. Costs a lot of money. You'll see. You need us. As it turned out, he has a hit with a big, soppy ballad. One of my least favorite songs, but Love Symbol. convinced him to believe that he had sound business sense that he could do this on his own and I think Warner Brothers letting him do it in a way slightly backfired on them because it kind of gave Prince all the ammunition he needed to be able to say I can do this on my own now. A, an engineered effort, and that was Prince's proof to Warner Brothers, you know, this can be done. You know, you guys are as crap as my style and keep me from, you know, being as successful with my music as I can actually be. So, you know, it was a good yeah. thing, it was a bad thing. <laughs> because if Prince has shown that he's correct in his revelation, you can't stop it. He don't Again, need him. this is a prescient move. At the time, it just seemed a little weird, and it would get weirder. Every step along the way after this, things get stranger and stranger, and actually more difficult. Although The Most Beautiful Girl in the World had been a global hit, it was not a magic bullet, and the wider problems persisted. Prince had recently suggested to the label that he would submit two new albums, Come and The Gold Experience, to be released on the same day, which would put them in competition with each other in the marketplace. 
Unsurprisingly, Warners rebuffed the whole plan as a mad exercise in self-immolation and insisted that he work on improving Come. When it was released in August, Prince declined to engage in any promotion, describing the album as old material from a dead artist. What's interesting is that Prince initially wanted to have Come come out on the same day as the Gold Experience album, thereby pitting the two sort of brands, the Prince and the Symbol brand, against each other to sort of see which one would be successful. And you could kind of assume that Prince was hoping that the Gold Experience would be the more successful album. It's certainly the one that he was promoting at the time. And so it's kind of a weird, sort of murky period in, in Prince's career. People didn't like this record. Not because it's a Taylor bad record. Taylor Swift did something record. similar with it's Red, White, and Blue. Fantastic Prince record. Listen to it now. It's great. But it's an album of George Clinton, James Brown, avant funk. It's not a pop album. What's wrong with whatsoever. that? And people did not know what to make of that record. Critics who want Prince to fuck the critics, pop songs, fuck disliked it somewhat intensely and very much wrongly. Fans simply didn't know what to make of it. Of course, you should do that, baby. No more Music industry, it's dead anyway. album? Sure. Sometimes better? Absolutely. Then, just seemed like, wow, he'll do anything to get out of this record. The problem is that it gets caught up in the whole Warner Brothers battle, and you have Prince, by now what he's saying is starting to overshadow the music anyway, and it's very pointedly has on the artwork the birth date of Prince, 1958, and the death date of Prince on there as well, the year the album came out. And so Prince obviously sees it as a record that's kind of closing a chapter for him. Reviews have come were uniformly disparaging, and sales were slow. There was speculation that Prince was deliberately releasing substandard work, that he was rushing out albums of old material in order to hurry the end of his contract. The music press were becoming increasingly weary with the theatre of the label dispute, and Rolling Stone magazine advised that the public interpret come as another instalment in the most spectacular slow-motion career derailment in the history of popular music. <laughs> Papa, papa, 
The Rolling Stone assessment of Come isn't fair because it's a good record, and yet it's not inaccurate. It was another installment in a spectacular career derailment. Again, no one could see where this was going. It looked as though one of the greatest pop geniuses had renounced pop. It looked as though the person who had signed the biggest label deal in history had renounced his label. All of this didn't quite make sense. With Come in stores, Prince resumed negotiations with the label over the fate of the gold experience, and the battle reached its nadir. Unable to find common ground, Warners officially released the Black Album, an extensively bootlegged record that Prince had shelved in 1987. Blows were traded in the press, with both sides taking out mud-slinging advertisements in Billboard magazine. Prince claimed that the gold experience was being deliberately suppressed by the label and insisted that he had a moral right to ownership of his masters, including his back catalogue. In the early weeks of 1995, he began to appear in public with the word slave slashed across his face. I'm privy to a conversation that he had with Mo Austin around the time of the gold experience. He mentioned the gold experience as a record he wanted to put out. We hadn't begun working on this record yet. It was just a thing we've been talking about. And uh, he got a phone call. He said he, he said he talked to Mo Austin on the phone. And Mo Austin was like, they used to talk about other business. And then Mo Austin said, okay, well, as soon as you get that gold experience record finished, you know, send it right on, you know, and uh, it, we'll do what we know, you know, we'll, we'll run, we'll do what we do. And uh, Prince said, I. Uh, I haven't even started on it yet. I'm just conceiving it in my brain. And Mo was like, well, you know, either way, it's ours. So, and I think Prince, at that point, made an epiphany that this company thinks that they own the ideas that are in my head. I haven't even begun to put anything on tape. And they're already talking about what they're going to do with it. So, so what? I think that was really... <laughs> that that comes was with the, having the a point business relationship. At which Prince realized... I can't do this anymore. And he walks into rehearsal with that slave written on his face. And, you know, he's like, this is it. I'm here with the new power generation and the artist formerly known as Prince as a member of the band. He's agreed to his first television interview in over a decade, but is refusing to answer any questions. <laughs> now, the press keeps talking about the dispute with your record company. Is there a dispute there? <laughs> I mean, it seems that's what's driven you out of America. That's what that's what's made you change your name to an unpronounceable symbol. <laughs> he changed his name because his spirit told him to. <laughs> A spirit? A spirit. And do you feel freer now that you can't be addressed? A little bit? You seem to be fighting for freedom. What is it exactly that you want to be free from when you're talking about your record company? Is there something that you want to own? Is there something that you want to be able to edit? Is there something that you want to be able to say that you can't? Maybe my take could tell me what? Do you want to own your own masters? No. What? In your job, can you leave it if you want to? Yeah, I can. You can. Mm -hmm. Well, in the record industry, you can't. But can't you just stop performing? Yeah, you can, 
but that you can't get out. It? Yeah, it doesn't count. What is this, the firm? Yeah. You can't own your masters. You can only make, you know, pennies on the dollar. Meanwhile, other people are, you know, <laughs> are just, they got fat mattresses and they keep shoveling money that they've made from your ingenuity, you know, that you're never going to see. I don't think he only perceived his deal as unfair. I think it was a general feeling about the business that it's just unfair. Maybe if he had come at it a little more every man, I suppose, and explained himself a little more clearly, um, he may have gotten more sympathy. Would things have changed? Probably not, because he was really the first person taking this issue on at that level. A business point that's become a culture point because of everything that's happened since, but there in the middle of the 90s, for an average music fan, it all seemed really weird. It's like, why do I care? Turns out we would all end up caring about this stuff, but we didn't know at the time. So I think people were aware that things were changing, but I don't think they had any uh, awareness of what was to come. Warner Brothers said something, and he there was a rebuttal. Was, this all went on in Billboard magazine for you know a month or better, and I was like, wow, this is getting heated up, man. This is getting turned up. Like, who knows what's gonna happen? And I remember Prince saying, like, listen, I don't know what's gonna happen. You know, they might try to send somebody. You know, somebody needs to know where the vault's at and how to get the key. Because, you know, who knows? I mean, big business is dirty. On a very special TV dad. I didn't make the dance team. What do I always say? Switch your car insurance to progressive. Prince was by now firmly resolved that he could not work within the context of the established music industry, that he would have to find alternative means of producing and marketing his art. He vented his feelings on a second new power generation album, Exodus, a collection of agitprop jams with lead vocals taken by bassist Sonny T. Rejected by Warners, Prince released Exodus through NPR in total disregard of his contract terms. Oh, well, you know, when we grew up, we both had our own bands, and we both were singing. And, you know, we used to talk about this. You know, we talk about what we're going to do. Yeah, when I get my band, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get my band to do that. So it's really strange that he, you know, as we grew up, and that we both were in the same band. He, you know, he knows I've been singing for years and stuff. So he's always, like, asked me to do something to sing. You know, he's like, okay, you, I, would you sing on this record? I'm like, yeah. So that's how that came about. Prince was like, let's do a record on Sonny, why not? And it started out harmless enough, but it quickly grew into a situation where Sonny, in my opinion, was the mouthpiece uh, for Prince, uh, you know, and a lot of ideas Prince was having at the time. I mean, the Exodus has begun, man, that is, <laughs> that is uh, uh, a, a, a verbal beatdown, <laughs> if I remember correctly. 
I haven't listened to it in years, but I remember the first time hearing it after Prince put his vocals on and everything came together. I was like, wow. He has managed to channel his anger into a very specific phrases. And the syntax was so creative and spot on. You know, it was, it, it's, whoever it was directed at specifically should have been really ashamed of themselves. You have just accessed the beautiful experience. Welcome to the dawn. Exhausted by the ongoing conflict and collateral damage to their brand, Warners finally agreed to release the gold experience in September 1995, on the condition that Prince stopped defaming them in public. The album was warmly received and roundly praised as Prince's best work in years. It was clear from sales figures, however, that the dispute had taken a toll on his mainstream popularity. A few months later, the whole unhappy episode concluded as the parties agreed terms to end their relationship. Uh, you know, enough was enough, and I think Warner's realised that this wasn't going to end unless, you know, ironically, Prince kind of gets his way again. You know, not, not sort of un uh, unconditionally. What they ended up coming up with was an agreement that the Gold Experience would come out as a joint Warner Brothers MPG release, uh, and then Prince would owe them two more albums from The Vault, uh, and those would be, those are going to be Chaos and Disorder and The Vault Old Friends for Sale, and these would be sort of collection of old material they'd have on them, and it stands very pointedly, originally intended for private use only on the artwork and things like that, that would kind of show what feelings Prince had for these things. They were there, they were kind of, you take these and now leave me alone. And uh, I think they were quite happy to get Prince off their back by that point. The public battle between Prince and Warner Brothers didn't go well for anyone. Uh, it hurt Prince's career enormously because people felt he was entitled. And it, Warner Brothers' statements just made them seem even more money-grubbing grubbing than labels usually seem, which they seldom don't. Um, it hurt both of them, especially in light of the Gold Experience album, which was the best album Prince had made, certainly since Diamonds and Pearls, and possibly even before that. And it was delayed for a year. It came out in 1995. There were at least two lyrics on the album that spoke about 1994 in the present tense. And he had been talking about it for a long time. Um, but there was so much bile on both sides that the album wasn't able to be promoted effectively, and it's very hard when you work for a record company and, and an artist is talking shit about you to feel good about promoting the record and making them a star. It was some of the strongest work we did, but the events and the emotional climate <laughs> at the time was hardcore, man. I remember coming to rehearsal uh, and just sometimes having a headache just from the stress alone of just, we could just, it was just all... It was pushing us to our limits. I'll say that from my, uh, as my opinion. Uh, it, we were all kind of just, wow, this is a weird place to be in and unpredictable from day to day. And the prince basically figured out a way to distill his derision <laughs> into really great art. Prince was, in a way, returning to a form that was more familiar. There was really not, you know, any rap music, you know, any rapping going on. Uh, a lot of the musical arrangements were pretty straightforward. And, um, again, you know, I, I, 
less electronics, more real playing. You know, in a way, it was a little bit like a, a chapter two of Diamonds and Pearls with a smaller ensemble and uh, a lot of rage. <laughs> I think because it was such a scaled down record, you know, I mean, it had some bells and whistles on it, but the core of the music was so organic, you know, and you could just hear it come out over all the other things. There's a couple electronic little things on there. But I think because it was just so, so warm, the sound was warm to it, you know. And that was a great record. Only Again, kind of like Diamonds and Pearls was in a way. It's a collection of great songs. There's not none of the high concept work. There's a bit of stuff. There's an NPG operator telling you Prince is dead. Uh, there's the segues which are kind of designed to make it seem like you're listening to an interactive experience. You know, you press a button and you get the come experience or the gold experience or whatever experience is coming out. And, uh, and so, but that doesn't really detract away from what a great song is. You have Peak Control, which is a fantastic song. You have Most Beautiful Girl in the World, turned upon an album there. You have Gold. It's kind of an attempt to do a powerful rank for the 90s, but for me it kind of works as well. And it's sort of, it's that moment where his production was very heavy and very tense, but he hasn't quite overdone it just yet, and he still manages to bring out good songs. Things like the MPG operator and uh, downloading experiences, he just began to see a future time when things were more interactive, and I think, in a way, it's a metaphor for just removing the large corporation and being a more direct, you know, source for you know, your audience. A play begins in a schoolyard. A little girl keeps her own friend. A kid in a cat with a lunch in a The fight is worse than one day over this hoodie. She got beat for some guns and a rap. With a chin up, she's going to all y'all. And I'm rich on your neck, I will step in. Ready? The college, the master degree. She hired the half bus that jumped out and made everyone out the way for free. No. So, what if my sister's a trifle? They just. Mommy, she told me you need pussy control. The live shows off the back of this were great as well. It's a period that's sort of been reevaluated over the years. I think at the time, a lot of people went and were disappointed that he wasn't playing the new, the old material, um, that he was going on stage playing the new material because he wasn't playing any Prince, Prince material anymore. And um, when you listen to a lot of the live shows now, you just realise that he... Uh, he, he, this is an album where he still got it and he's still taken a claim for himself in the 90s. 
As a freshly minted independent artist, Prince started to make conciliatory noises towards his former employers. He claimed to harbor no ill will, and that his issue had never been with Warner Brothers specifically, but with the whole edifice of music economics. He made remarks to the press that were received at the time as a bleak or eccentric, telling the NME that once the internet is a reality, the music business is finished. In retrospect, however, Prince's statements were prophetic. The portents of a man who appeared into the future and perceived the digital frontier with uncommon clarity. In 1999, we'll be free and we can sell the music directly to the consumer. And we can give it away if we want. In retrospect, Prince's problem really wasn't with Warners as much as it was the industry itself. I mean, Prince was ahead of his time. He was absolutely right. Many of the things that he griped about, I thought he was dead on. Record companies had their heads in the sand. They were all an automatic pilot. The business model was there. We would have meetings where he would frustratingly want to figure out alternative ways to release and promote records because he was so dissatisfied with how labels conducted business. Now, he was signed to Warner's, so of course his frustration is directed to Warner's because that's who he was in business with. But it wouldn't have been any different had he been signed to Columbia or RCA or any, any place else because it was, it was the business model itself, the industry, and how it functioned that frustrated him. I really think that Prince is a person who has really great ideas, and he sometimes he's too far ahead of the curve and other people don't know how to catch up with them, and maybe it's not even a good idea, because sometimes if you see too far into the future, it can be problematic for everybody involved. <laughs> you know? I remember him telling us, one day music is going to be sold you know, back and forth by computers. Get out of here, man. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know? But lo and behold, you know. So many things in the story of Prince throughout the 90s feel anticipatory feels like he's Merlin, living life in reverse, right? So that in 1995, he says, well, if the internet really, really gets going, like if there's a real internet, like if what they're saying happens, it's the end of the music industry. And everyone says, come on, man. Is it kind of nutty? Because he's changed his name to the symbol thing, and he's writing slave on his face, and he's got that beard that's not quite a beard, but you don't know what it is, so we don't have to take this seriously, and it turns out he's completely right. Completely right. And his whole attitude about not owning his masters, not owning his publishing, owing his record company money for his work, all of this which leads him to declare himself a slave. Well, if you said that now, if you said that the artist seemed enslaved to the record company system, everyone would go like, yeah, tell me something I don't know. In 1992, Prince, he was Prince then, signed a $100 million contract with Warner Brothers Records, the biggest deal in the industry. But their deal turned into a public feud over who would have the control. In protest of that contract, the artist scrawled the word slave on his face. But y'all remember this face? All those years before, all those years, times, you were walking around with slave on the side of your face. What was that all about? To clarify that, so um, people don't get the wrong impression, I um. I never meant to be compared to any slave of the past or any slave of the future. The slavery that I had undergone was, in my mind and um, 
as well as the business that I was in. Uh, we inked a uh, $100 million deal with Warner Brothers, mm-hmm. and uh, that turned out to be a little less than desirable. Um, $100 million did? The, the whole deal. deal. Yeah. What all that meant. Yeah. It's like I was saying before, that you, you can go into record, you can go into do some form of art, and if you uh, you have any sort of chains on you, it's not going to come out as cool as it can be. So you felt as an artist enslaved? Yes. Mm-hmm. It sounds like you've grown. Uh, no, I'm pretty much the same size. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I really do feel I have inside. Do you think that it would have happened to you had you not been enslaved? Oh, no. Absolutely not. And I, you know, I, some days I want to just call up folks at Warner Brothers and just, I love you, man. Really? Yeah. Just because? Of the journey and they're part of the experience. I, I'm thankful to them for giving me the opportunity to be here talking to you. As time goes on, a lot of major artists today are now leaving their major record labels behind. Most notably, you get Radiohead doing that in 2007 and uh, sort of striking out on their own, setting up their own boutique labels. And you get Jack White doing that with Third Man. Uh, Radiohead have done that when they released their In Rainbows album. And the thing is that Prince was sort of 10 or 15 years ahead of all of these guys and trying to get away from a traditional business model where you had a major label that gave you money to do stuff and then you went off on the back of that and trying to take things under his own control. Free to record, release and conduct his affairs as he saw fit, Prince set about reorganizing his life. In 1996, while Warner Brothers were promoting Chaos and Disorder, an album of cast-offs that they had received in the divorce settlement, Prince was dismantling the new power generation and putting together a different band, albeit still under the same name. He married Maite Garcia, who subsequently fell pregnant with their first child and relaunched his public profile, frequently granting interviews and appearing on television chat shows. Please welcome back to the program the artist formerly known as Prince. Tragedy struck towards the end of the year when Prince and Maite's son was born with Pfeiffer syndrome and died within a few days. Now carrying sole responsibility for his business affairs, Prince hid the news from the public and rather than take a break, he ramped up promotional activity for his forthcoming album, Emancipation. Released on the 19th of November, 1996, Emancipation was billed as Prince's definitive artistic statement. Three discs of music held back from Warners that represented years of his strongest work. Despite an initial surge in sales, however, the record slowly drifted out of view after only a few short weeks on the chart. Emancipation. Three hours of and liberty. From the artist Harmony Prince. I do remember a funny situation where Michael Jackson had just put out history. And Prince noticed in SoundScan that it was a double record. So he got credit for double the numbers. This is like, I could make a three CD record and get triple the, you know, like, <laughs> I remember him saying, I'm like, oh, well, yeah, sure, why can't you? Sound-wise, I think there, there's a difference. I mean, that sound even moved into a different spot, actually, from previous things because 
it was like more like he was like, I'm moving on from where I was. I'm trying to move to another level. I want to try something else. Let's go. Sort of neither here nor there. There's, there is some great stuff on it, you know, this face down, which are you know, kind of funky, upbeat song. It's hard not to enjoy that. Uh, when you get to the end of the second disc, you get a great run of songs where you really feel Prince is engaged with what he's doing. He is, you know, he's about to become a father for the first time or for the only time, and you can really feel this coming through in the music, and that is quite an enjoyable thing to hear. But over three discs, you also get a lot of stuff that's just kind of Prince doing R and B at the time. I think that Fitz made a real push. Uh, and, you know, was doing more interviews at the time. He needed to get out there because he knew the next step was going to be, I'm on my own, I need to reconnect with my fan base and, and gain new fans and follow That was the feeling I got from the application. That it was all about, okay, now there's, you know, there's a fear factor to be free. And Prince's immediate fear was the parlous state of his finances. The toxic combination of lavish spending and declining income had driven him to the threshold of bankruptcy, and the mirage of the $100 million contract had long since vanished in the desert of his label war. Though shipping a three-disc set had charged the figures and seen Emancipation certified platinum, the reality was that the album had sold barely half a million. During his time with Warners, these figures would have seemed catastrophic. But in the new, independent era, the picture was markedly different. With all revenues accruing directly to Prince, he found himself in healthy profit and was encouraged to bring his revolution to another branch of the music industry establishment. The artist formerly known as Prince held a press conference Tuesday morning in New York City to announce his first full-fledged U.S. tour since 1991. The tour actually kicked off Monday night at Pine Knob near Detroit and continues Wednesday at Jones Beach in New York. The artist said that during the 30-day tour, he'll be joined at various dates by No Doubt, Lenny Kravitz, George Clinton, Chaka Khan, and Santana. He also said that he'll grant requests made over the internet on this tour and will be playing such classics as Purple Rain and Little Red Corvette. In order to avoid ticket scalping, he said he won't be publishing a tour itinerary. Instead, he'll be announcing shows through local media several days in advance of each concert. Just as album releases traditionally took place via record companies, the live concert business was populated by squadrons of intermediaries. 
promoters, agents, and assorted middlemen that had designed the whole architecture of music tours. It was a system that ensured that together they culled a healthy profit from any artist going out on the road. Once again, Prince challenged the orthodoxy, embarking on a tour in which he handled venue booking, ticket sales, and marketing himself, cutting out concert promoters, and ensuring that he retained all the fruits of his labor. The sales for emancipation wouldn't have really mattered to Prince too much. I mean, it would to an extent, obviously, but he didn't need to make as many sales as he would have done under his old Warner Brothers contract. I think emancipation sold about 450,000 copies, uh, and Prince claimed to have been $5 million in profit. And I think if you look at it, people have suggested that for him to have even broken even under his Warner Brothers contract, he would have had to have sold 500,000 copies, which is more than the album actually did. So for Prince, it's an unqualified success. He has been able to come out like the most beautiful guy in the world and release that as a single and it hit number one and he's proved he could do it on his own. Certainly in financial terms, the manager has to even do it on his own again. And Prince was out on the road for the best part of 12 months, so he'd be selling merchandise, he'd be selling gig tickets, and as long as people were coming to the show, which they were in droves, Prince would just be making money hand over fist over these things, especially for being on tour for such a long stretch of time. There were times when I remember um, the road manager and the booking agent at that time in the 90s said, okay, this is Monday, Prince wants to do a show on Thursday, a 20,000 seat arena. He woke up and said, I want to do a show. And he's the only artist that I've ever worked with and have said, I want to do a show on Thursday and here it is Monday at a 20,000 seat arena. And I saw that happen many times. The touring business, like the record business, had an established traditional business model. There were certain promoters that were experienced and um, legitimatized by their relationships with artists and managers, known to be dependable, efficient, and so on. And same with agents. And uh, you know, a network of people who were accustomed to producing tours and doing it properly and, and productively. And, properly. And, um, you know, we were very successful in tapping into that network and exploiting it properly. Um, Prince didn't make a lot of money on his most famous tours in the 80s simply because they were production heavy, which was something he insisted on. He wasn't the least bit interested in production budgets. We would bring things to his attention and, and pre-production phase was always painful because it would invariably be conversations like, Prince, that's a great creative theatrical idea, but here's what it's going to cost. Well, you can go find the money. I don't care what it's going to co- what it's going to cost. Make it happen. But it's very obvious to me that he's figured it out. He's figured out how to have a viable theatrical production that's competitive and proper and at the same time streamline the number of people he has on the road and what he pays for and what he doesn't pay for. And by cutting out the, you know, he's not paying management commissions. He, he's not paying uh, percentages to a lot of people who take percentages in, in the traditional tour business model. So he is touring way more profitably now than he ever did it in, in his peak peak years in terms of record sales. It's, and it's it's remarkable. And it's a credit to his business sense because he's really, really figured out how to make a ton of money on the road without compromising the quality of his shows. And hats off. I think it's great. In running concerts independently, Prince was estimated to have netted $30 million from 1997's Jam of the Year tour alone. 
In just 18 months, he had rebuilt his entire fortune and had done so on his own terms. Having relaunched his career, Prince was ready to turn his mind back to the future and venture into the unknown territory of the coming cyber age. He announced that he would release Crystal Ball, a box set comprising three CDs of material and rarities from the vault, together with a fourth disc of new songs entitled The Truth, if he received a minimum number of advance orders through his website loveforoneanother.com and his phone line 1-800-NEW-FUNK. It was a bold and unprecedented venture into e-commerce, but was beset by problems that provoked consternation among fans. As a first step to realizing the ultimate goal of becoming a self-contained artistic and commercial entity, however, Prince was off and running. Prince doesn't get enough credit for what he was doing in the late 90s, when Radiohead released their own Rainbows box set throughout their website in 2007. That's 10 years later, but people acted like it was the first time anyone had ever done this sort of thing. But what you get Prince doing in 97 is taking pre-orders for the Crystal Ball box set, and he became the first artist to sell an entire album online direct to his fans. The whole marketing thing, he went straight to the people who he wanted to sell it to. There was no middleman. There was no need for a record label. Prince just took it all under his own umbrella organization. And I think that was incredibly forward-thinking. He'll have schemes ideas that prove prescient. I'm going to take orders for my album online. I'm going to use a, a, a 1-800 number where you can like call up and buy it like it's a telemarketed album. But I'm going to take orders online. Who does that? Will that work? In the 90s, nobody really knows. People haven't done it before. Now, of course, it is the entire record business. But then, it's a little weird, and it doesn't quite work. It ends up that the fans who order the record have to wait longer than the fans who go to the record store to buy it. They get different packages. People aren't sure what they're buying. Now it feels like things are unraveling. And again, Prince just keeps going forward and forward and forward. Was it a feeling of him taking a lot on his shoulders? Yes, of course it is. Of course it is. I'm sure that was a heavy weight for him because he knew he was making a stance. It had not been done in that way. And um, the fact that he did it and he stood alone through all scrutiny and I was there to witness that, you know, but he kept going. He didn't complain. He just kept doing what he was doing. And I admired him. And I told him, I said, I really respect the fact that you're taking this stance because there comes a time there has to be a change, you know. I think what he underestimated was the complications that can come in just with the busy work involved with physically packaging and mailing, going to the post office and mailing these things in a timely fashion is, is pretty damn labor intensive. Um, I think he may have underestimated that part of it, but you know, there again, that's just the busy work. It's the concept that we're dealing with here with a, a leader like Prince who has that kind of influence. So he, he was definitely ahead of the game. As to how much attention people were paying, I mean, I honestly think that by the late 90s, it was pretty clear to everybody who cared that, you know, what, what Prince saw some years earlier was coming to fruition. Ah! Old-fashioned murders. Diary. The 
Prince's criticisms of the record business came at the turn of the millennium, when the music industry suddenly, spectacularly, imploded. Over the course of the 1990s, the industry had become a risk-averse, money-making machine, monopolized by just a few major labels who used their muscle to arrange the market in their favor and dictated their terms to artists and consumers alike. Yeah. The quiet migration of Prince and others that? to the internet proved to be the precursor to a general exodus. When the peer-to-peer file-sharing website Napster launched in 1999, consumers rushed to download and distribute music free of charge. And having neglected to develop a viable commercial presence in cyberspace, the industry was overwhelmed. Artists, <laughs> most prominently Metallica, lined up to condemn Napster, and the Recording Industry Association of America began feverishly issuing lawsuits. Fuck that. American intellectual property is our nation's greatest trade asset. We cannot stand idly by as our nation's assets are in jeopardy or dismissed by those who would use them for their own enrichment. Record companies fought tooth and nail over the issue, and the courts agreed. It's the record companies who hold the patents on cheating musicians out of money. It was rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Although the cumulative weight of lawsuits eventually shut down Napster, the music... Let's take back 2024. And to get started right away, we're giving away these $100 gold bars for free. And who's that handsome guy on each bar? Unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. Suits eventually shut down Napster. The music business faced total collapse, and artists looked to establish a new digital economy in which to commercialize their work. They had their heads in the sand, and the evidence is very plain and simple. Napster came from outside the industry. The record industry was so myopic about technology. All a record company knew in the 80s was if you had a new product, you went to the radio station programmers that you knew. You made a video and you took it to MTV and BET and anybody else who would play a video. And you had a PR person go to the print media and to any magazine and anybody else who might write something about your house. You hired friends of friends. The people that worked for labels used to be programmers at radio stations. I mean, it was this inbred world that had fed on itself for so many years. And basically, it had worked so successfully, and so many careers had been made by it, and people were loyal to it, and they took vacations together, and they partied together, and they married each other, and it was this whole yeah. atmosphere of, Sharon Osborne. we have this winning business model, so let's not, don't fix it if it isn't broken. Well, the problem was it was, broken, it was about to break. You see, I'm not a Napster fan. I don't, it seems to me like people are getting ripped off. I don't understand it other than, all I know is these people are putting money out, putting work out there, and somebody's enjoying it without paying for it. Well, the, it's interesting because the uh, artists don't get paid anyway. Oh, by the record? No, I mean, there's maybe 10 or 12 of them that have semi-decent deals, and the rest of them are, you know. What was happening in the record industry in the mid-90s was a transition from grunge to teen pop. 
So from unmanageable drug-addicted bands to extremely manageable, professional, commercially-minded young people who want to make bright and happy pop music. CD sales were doing quite well, thank you very much. People were buying old records reissued on CD, a very healthy profit center for the record business, which did not have to spend any money to make those records except the cost of putting them on a piece of plastic, which, by the way, is about 35 cents. That's a lot of money when you're selling a 35-cent product for $16. The record game is making buckets of money. Buckets and buckets of money. Nobody thinks things are going to go bad. Nobody sees what's happening. Prince says, oh, if the internet becomes a reality, you guys are finished. And what do you do if you're in a record company? You get back into the hot tub and you smoke another cigar when you hear that. You don't go like, I think he's right. Because he's been right about everything else up till now. It is this big unwieldy behemoth now and it's kind of also happy ripping off its customers i think many people come that there's an agreement now it was overpricing cds you know everyone knows you can buy a cd for 50p or something like that why were we being charged 18 quid for a single cd up to 25 quid for double CD discs and it seems now in retrospect that the record label has become hugely greedy in the 90s and were more interested in you know, making money over, you know, as opposed to making, say, art, quote-unquote, or capital A art, as you want to put it. Fist, and yeah. so I think that by the time, you know, as Prince said, when the internet is coming, the industry is over, is because by the time things like Napster and everything came out, everyone realised that they were being ripped, have been being ripped off for years. Nobody saw the digital well, revolution coming. They weren't ripped off. To the degree, to the you public the music. degree that Prince did. I don't think. Artists didn't. You'd hear people talking about it. There'd uh, be various really internet yeah. soothsayers going around saying what they expected could happen. But the concept of music being a digital file, the concept of music no longer being an object that you had to go to the store and buy, wasn't something that most people could grasp until Napster hit. The industry was gone. It was over. Just literally overnight. And, and I remember there used to be little signs of, of where something's going to change here, but we don't know what it is. And we're not really taking the time to figure out what it is. We're just going to wait and react because what we have is too good. It's too easy. And it's working too well. So we'll just kind of wallow in it, and when the shit hits the fan, we'll react to it. Well... Too late. Prince's eventual response to Napster was to embrace it, publicly stating that there was nothing to fear, and even taking the radical step of releasing a single on the platform in 2001. In the late 90s, yeah, however, he was focused on the first work awesome. of a new era. Napster. Both Emancipation and Crystal Ball included songs that were a hangover from the Warners period, but in 98, the first big release of all new material was announced. Confusingly, New Power Soul was credited to the New Power Generation, although Prince energetically promoted it as his new album. He was accompanied during the campaign for New Power Soul by both former Sly Stone bassist Larry Graham and Shaka Khan, and he encouraged the public to buy their new records, which would be issued on his MPG label in a move that recalled the original concept for Paisley Park. The great success of Warner Brothers Records, I was ordered the luxury. My dream was always to help my heroes. 
they come to my place and they record for free and uh, the rest of the money. So, and, and you're going to be touring together too, isn't that right? Now, I know you wrote I Feel in New Power Soul the sound he was creating for us and himself at that time was just something that that's just another part of Prince. You know, in his head, he, he listens to so many different genres of music and he respects so many artists. So it's amazing that he hasn't put out well, even more style. I so I looked at it as, okay, this is R&B, this is soul, this is rock, this is funk, this is, you know, it's a lot of things together. You know, I, I don't think any of us gave it any thought because we know how his mind works, you know. Um, a lot of times when you are at majors, they make you stay in a genre and say, this is what you're known for, this is what we're going to sell, these are the markets that we have created for you, but he feels like market is universal. I hear the transition from what was his past to that time. MPG getting it on, come on. And you make your living 
by marketing yourself to the public, that it goes with the turf. To turn your back on any and everybody who wants to pay you attention, well then, if that's the case, you should be the artist who privately makes records, does not tour, does not perform publicly, and stay in your house. If that's who you want to be, then do that. But if you're going to come out and sell tickets to 20,000 people to come hear you play and sit in a seat and stare at you, then you can't get angry because they're staring at you. As his argument with the fans rumbled towards the courts, Prince stunned the music world by announcing his return to a major record label. A one CD deal with a record company that is not your normal record company. Why'd you do this? Well, um, Clive Davis and I sat down and talked about how to uh, create an artist record label agreement that was in fact that agreement, not a contract. I'm not restricted by any means. I think all artists should be under agreements. Lenny Kravitz, for example, a friend of mine, hang out and shoot we'd make together, but you know, he's still on the plantation, so uh, when he comes on up north, gets with me, then we can do something. About to divorce from Maite, and at a crossroads in his career, Prince sought to lighten the burden of self-releasing and thrashed out a one-album deal with industry heavyweight Clive Davis at Arista Records. Davis had been busy rehabilitating the career of Carlos Santana with Supernatural, an album that went on to become a record-breaking multi-platinum sensation. He spotted an opportunity to kickstart something similar with Prince and offered the artist an $11 million advance plus ownership of his master for Rave Into the Joy Fantastic to come out on Arista. On its release in November, however, Rave Into the Joy Fantastic performed poorly, with lead single The Greatest Romance Ever Sold only reaching number 63 on the chart. Prince blamed everything other than the work itself accusing Clive Davis of breaking his promises and failing to adequately promote the album. When Prince signed with Arista for Raven to the Joy Fantastic in 1999, again, the, the model that he starts to work with at this time, he's done with Emancipation, he carried on to use this, this package distribution deal. So Prince would sign for a one-off deal the label so that they could... He would use their clout, essentially, to get it into shops and to get it out there, but all the recording costs and all the production costs and things like that, Prince would assume those himself. What it would mean is that he would owe nothing to the label, no recording costs, nothing like that. The label would have nothing to recoup because Prince had put all the money himself, but they would have the manufacturing, the distribution means to be able to get it out there, to be able to make it a high-profile release. So, in a way, he's kind of piggybacking on the, the bigger structure that I made. Quality of the production, quality of the production. The and what Arista Records wants out of this is a chance to be part of the rebirth of a great artist. They put out a Santana record, the biggest record in the world, but. Santana record is a very craven commercial record where the artist listened to the record company step by step by step. Prince album is an album that Prince made. It's got to If you want it, do business together. It's an album made on its own terms, its own purposes. Uh, it's not a craven commercial record. It's not.